Longtime Senator Luke Kenley will step aside. Dozens of tax and fee increases take effect. That plus school grading changes and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending July 7th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Republican Luke Kenley, the state Senate's budget architect for nearly a decade, announced he will retire this fall. Noblesville Republican Luke Kenley was re-elected to another four-year term just last November, but he says he told people on the campaign trail he had two final goals, passing another balanced budget and creating a long-term road funding plan. After crossing both those off his checklist in the 2017 session, he says it's time to move on. Kenley, one of the most influential lawmakers at the State House, has spent 25 years in office. His service includes the last nine sessions as the chamber's chief budget writer chairing the Appropriations Committee. Praise for the retiring lawmaker came from both sides of the aisle. Governor Eric Holcomb calls the GOP senator an essential state budget architect for years and years and says he'll continue to seek Kenley's counsel. Democratic Senator Karen Talian, Kenley's counterpart on the Appropriations Committee, says their relationship is one of mutual respect. She calls his retirement a great loss to the Senate and to the state of Indiana as a whole. What will be the impact of Senator Kenley's retirement? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette State House reporter Nikki Kelly, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Elise Schrock, what kind of ripple effects what might we see in the Senate because of this? Sure. Well, first I have to echo the sentiments that have come from both sides of the aisle. Uh, Senator Kenley has served our state beyond measure. There's no doubt about that. And that, uh, with that comes... Um, a loss of institutional knowledge. And it's kind of similar to when we lost Bill Crawford a few years ago. Uh, but Senator Kenley had a real primary challenge the last election. Um, we're seeing the Republican base become more and more extreme. So undoubtedly, this district takes a shift to the right, and with it, the Indiana Senate. And I'm not sure that's good for Hoosiers. What kind of impact does the loss of Luke Kenley have? I think it's a big one. We've had a lot of turnover in the legislature in the last uh, three or four cycles. He brought in about 25 years of institutional knowledge, was trained by the best. Um, uh, uh, Senator Borst, who preceded him on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, we also lost uh, uh, Jeff Papa, left the Senate. Uh, he was actually, actually yeah, as chief, uh, the Senate's chief of staff uh, for 20 years. I mean, he hired, he hired me for my Senate internship 17 years ago. Um, and so they lost a lot of institutional memory in a body, um, in a chamber in the State House that's really seen a lot of turnover. So there's great people behind them. There's people that are going to gonna be able to step up, Ryan Mishler and others who have been trained in those uh, and been a part of these uh, fiscal debates over the years. I want to ask about uh, the impact on education. Uh, measures would come over from the House that would push, try to push the state further on charter schools, on voucher spending in particular, and, and Luke Kenley was often a bulwark against some of that, not in, in its entirety, but dragging it a little further back. With the loss of Luke Kenley, is, are the floodgates open? Well, I don't know if the floodgates are open per se, but he definitely 
moderated some of those bills over the years, and not just on education. He was a moderate voice on other topics like abortion and other things too. And and so it's going to be a huge loss for the Senate. And um, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to see who who we replace him with, and maybe we'll just go back to the old days and just have one big Senate Finance Committee. It's, 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 it's worked out so well for Larry Borst in the end. Um, I want to ask something Elise mentioned. Uh, and, and that Nikki just sort of echoed, which was Lou Kenley was at times a moderate voice in an increasingly conservative Senate Republican caucus. Will this dramatically shift it more to the right? Well, it certainly has the potential to do that. I think it'll be interesting to see who follows him. I think one of the reasons why he decided to leave when he did is he'll have some control uh, or more control over who will succeed him. There are essentially three years left on his term. Uh, and so I think he will have a big say in who replaces him, and I think that person probably will reflect his views. Uh, but that's only one person in a body of 50, and, and it also is somebody who will be coming in without the experience and, and the relationships that he has. And so clout. Uh, absolutely. And so I think that, um, to your question most directly, I do think that this has the potential to turn the Senate more to the right, um, and I think it'll be an even uh, more difficult job for Senator Long as President Pro Tem to manage this caucus um, in, in, in the sense that um, he's got a number of factions. And if they all start to move you know, against each other, trying to keep that together as a cohesive unit will be more difficult. And I think uh, people like Senator Kenley, who'd been there a long time, uh, and tend to come from the middle, we're able to help him in that regard. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see in the coming session uh, which factions gain prominence and how that uh, plays out, because um, uh, it, it could be a fractious Senate, I think. Nikki mentioned it'll be interesting to see who replaces Senator Kenley on appropriations or if they do combine that and tax and fiscal policy into one giant committee again. The two names being bandied about at this point, I think, or Senator Brant Hirschman, who chairs tax and fiscal policy, and Ryan Mishler, who was uh, the vice chair on appropriations. Would you be surprised if it were, let me put it this way, who do you think it'll be? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think Senator <laughs> Mishler, um, in the last couple years that I uh, helped out as a staffer at the Senate, I kind of got the feeling that he may be groomed as the next guy. So I would not be shocked to see uh, Senator Mishler take on that role. But, I, of course, both of them have had a lot of experience that could gear towards that position. Would it be a disappointment for Brian Hirschman if he doesn't get this job? <clears throat> I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. But I think if they, if they combine them, it is Brian Hirschman. If they keep them separate, everybody just kind of stays where they're at, and then we replace the, um, you know, we replace the chairman with with Ryan Mishler. But Brand Hirschman does bring similar institutional memory and knowledge. I mean, he's he's one of the top two or three leaders in the uh, in the Senate, and so he's fully capable of running both the appropriations and tax and fiscal under a Senate Finance Committee, which was the old model. You just had two exceptionally well qualified guys in Luke Kenley and Brand Hirschman when Senator Borst um, left. Uh, which was, I think, the reason they, they split it to begin with. Well, one thing to remember, even when it was the Senate Finance Committee, they had a budget subcommittee, and Senator Morris Mills was the point person on that. So I think even if they went back to one committee, you'd still have a, a number two or a 1A, however you want to look at that, uh, because it is too big a job to try to do all of those things uh, by one person. Nikki, we have seen Ryan Mishler being groomed for this job, and, and Ken, Senator Kenley, in his interview with me, made reference to the fact that they've been making those moves over the last uh, couple of years. But 
if you're Brant Hirschman, if you don't get appropriations, is that a loss? Well, I don't, I don't know if he particularly wants it. I mean, I know he's certainly enjoyed his tax and finance committee. I, I mean, partly it's up to whether he wants it or if he likes what he's doing now and can, and can still help out on that side because he has also taken over some other, you know, issues. Like he's one of the go-to people for David Long if there's kind of a, you know, an issue that's problematic for the caucus. <laughs> All right, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, is it right for a lawmaker to run for re-election and then retire before their new term is up? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question, is voucher student performance, as good or better in English, not as good in math, positive or negative for the program overall. 14% say it's positive, 54% say it is negative, 32% say we just don't know enough yet. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, 45 different tax and fee increases took effect this week as the state began its new fiscal year. The tax and fee hikes came out of legislation approved in the 2017 legislative session. Most are relatively routine, higher fees for copies of court records to help fund courthouse technology upgrades, and increased fees for some professional licenses and background checks. There's also the big ones, fuel tax hikes tied to the new road funding legislation that went into effect July 1st. New fees at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles that help fund that roads bill don't begin until January. Mike O'Brien, should Hoosiers come to expect this from those tax and spend Republicans at the State House? I would ignore how fully loaded that <laughs> question is. Yeah. What also took effect this week was the seventh straight balanced budget the Republicans, State House Republicans have passed since 2005. Um, so I'll put up our f- fiscal record along with 17 tax cuts in, thir- in 13 years now, including the corporate income tax, which we're currently cutting. Um, so I'll put up our, uh, our fiscal bona fides against uh, any other state and certainly against State House Democrats. Um, the big one, of course, is the transportation bill. And, you know, Senator Kenley, the reason he decided to stay on, and, and Representative Ed Soliday and Governor Holcomb and Governor Pence um, and a lot of other people spent two or three years now crafting this transportation plan. Um, so I think what you'll expect from State House Republicans is, one, continued fiscal prudence. But in the case of the gas tax increase, which 10 years ago would have been a political killer, they spent a long time talking to the public, assessing the need, and deciding ultimately that we do have to invest a billion dollars a year in, infra- in infrastructure, and we have to go pay for that. My brand of fiscal conservatism is that we establish our, pro- our priorities, and then we pay for them. And that's what this plan does. It doesn't put us in debt. It's forward-looking. It begins, to, it begins the public policy debate over how do we fund roads in the future when fuel and um, other you know, gas taxes and other, other things erode, and we have electric cars. It's a very forward-looking plan, and I think because it was so thoughtful, that's why you haven't seen the political outcry that you might have seen 10 years ago with uh, the gas tax increase specifically. That philosophy, the, the pay what you use, has kind of been driving, driving a lot of this stuff the last several years under particularly Republican leadership, and most years it's just in little licensing fees going up here or there that most Hoosiers don't pay. But this year, with so much focus on the road plan, even if it is a user fee, as many Republicans at the State House like to call it. Do you think that's going to be more, create more outcry from, from voters at the polls? 
Well, I think some of these uh, fees are neither here nor there, but I think the larger impact that we've seen coming from um, over the last couple of years is that the tax cuts that uh, we've been told about and that have been passed are really just tax shifts, and that's what really hits Hoosier's pocketbooks. So. Um, some $600 million in tax cuts have gone to corporations. Um, that is more of a tax shift, and it ends up um, being put on middle and lower income Hoosiers. So that's where they feel the true impact of all of this, and, and that's what's going to drive them um, when they go to vote. With this philosophy of the user fee model as much as possible, is that sustainable long term? Um, I think that we have to keep in mind that the major source of revenue for the state is our sales tax and then our in personal income tax and then the corporate income tax is a distant third. Um, and the idea that you can run government through assessments and fees is not possible. That said, it very clearly is the Republicans' um, priority. It is their philosophy to say, if you're going to use this service, then you should pay for that service. And many of those increases, many of those fees this year, were indeed increases from you know previous levels of what had happened before. We see those, as you mentioned, every year. It's just that uh, they got enumerated and identified, and you can bet in the fall of 2018 we'll all be well aware, uh, because I'm sure that the Democrats will make this their best hold, and it'll be incumbent upon the Republicans, as Mike said, to continue to tell the story. If you want good roads, for instance, and you have to pay for it. So it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out when the election occurs. To the point of this enumeration, that it was 45 this particular session. There are lots of sessions. I'm not sure if it ever approaches 45, but there are plenty of sessions where there are probably quite a few if you counted them all up. Will this be something that voters will notice, though, given that we are more than a year out from elections? I'm not sure. I mean, honestly, most of these are things, they have long looked at court costs and things like that and put fees on that, you know, and they think, well, if you want to go to a notary, then you're going to have to pay more at the notary. One of the ones this year that I think there will be some people feeling is the teachers having to pay a new background check fee. I mean, teachers are already not paid well enough, according to lawmakers in the state house. There's been a lot of talk about how to address that. Um, so that's an example. I decided they're going with sort of the airline approach, which is, you know, <laughs> don't raise the ticket price, a.k.a. the sales tax or the income tax rate, but, you know, hit you with all the fees on the side. <laughs> and airlines are incredibly popular. I think that's a good strategy. Uh, the Indiana Department of Education announced this week it will change the way it grades schools as the state seeks to comply with a new federal election law. Oh. The state will now consider chronic absenteeism and how non-native speakers are learning English when calculating school A to F grades. These two changes come as part of the Department of Education's draft plan for how the state will comply with the new federal Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaces the old No Child Left Behind law. Rather than punishing a school with a high absentee rate, a new measure will earn a school higher scores for students regularly attending and those whose attendance is improving. The other new measure will look at how English learners are mastering the language. This will be determined by the growth English learners show on an assessment that tests their skills. If a student improves on that assessment, or if they get to English proficiency, that helps the school's A to F grade. John Katzenberger, are these two new measures reasonable for schools to aim for? Well, it is an interesting shift because, um, you know, the A, a to F program was kind of like, okay, you're D and an F and you're a failing school. 
Um, this is looking to shift that a little bit, I think, and say, okay, you're doing well with attendance, and so you get extra benefit points, so to speak. So it's rewarding success um, without being quite as punitive on the other end. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's a recognition of the reality that um, there is a lot more to absenteeism, for instance, than just a kid not showing up. You know, there are a zillion reasons why that might be the case, and many of them are very difficult to deal with and intractable. So uh, hopefully we'll see, uh, you know, a program that keeps moving in this direction. You need an honest assessment, but you also need to help those schools in some fashion. You need to recognize that, which it seems like they have kind of indirectly here, and then help those schools with some of those issues. So I'll be curious to see how it goes going forward. This is, this is something that the ADAF grades have largely been decided by lawmakers and the state board. This was really Jennifer McCormick having the sort of freedom to say, this is what I want to focus on. And to that point, it's a sort of philosophy philosophy of we're not going to punish you for things, we're going to reward you for either high performance or growth. Is this the clearest philosophical statement we've seen from Jennifer McCormick yet in her time in office? Yeah, and it all comes from the flexibility that Congress gave when they passed the new federal education law, um, basically shifting from a, what, a stick to a carrot, you know, process. And I think anyone welcomes any objectable, objective data that you can use other than one I-STEP test, you know. And, and specifically looking at the ELL program, too, and so many school districts have so many kids who don't know how to speak English, have to learn it. And um, it, it, But it also becomes incumbent on lawmakers to fund those as well. And I want to give them props this session to vastly yeah. increasing the funding for that program. Do you think we could see this sort of trickle down to, I mean, we're constantly, it seems like we're constantly changing how we measure our schools and we're trying to get away from such heavy reliance on, on a statewide test that's had so many problems. Could we see Jennifer McCormick kick off a sort of philosophical shift there for lawmakers too, where it's more about rewarding performance than punishing it? Well, I, th yeah, I, I hope we do. Um, and I think uh, this was a great first step in that direction. The other thing it addresses, um, is really teacher recruitment. If a teacher was applying to a school and that applicant knew that the um, absentee rate for that school was very high, they know when they walk in the door on day one on their personal assessment they're getting dinged right out of the gate. So that was something that needed to be uh, fixed and I think is universally agreed, uh, really agreed upon. But I think over time we absolutely should continue to tweak how schools are measured, how teachers are, are uh, measured, and, and what we're getting for um, not a cost-benefit, um, but what the value we're getting for our education dollar. Do you think this Thank is you. the start of, this is the start, a small start to potential changes? Well, I want to speak to John's point about what goes into why a child doesn't or does not show up to work. This is um, larger than our schools. It starts at home. It starts in the communities. So um, I think uh, it could be a step in the right, direct, right direction, but it is a bit of an odd form of assessment to me because um, it should be, um, absenteeism should be something that a community takes a look at with the help and support of the school, but to put even more of a burden um, on teachers that are just trying to do their job, they don't need a, they don't need a, ca a carrot dangled in front of them. They're there to teach. Um, so to put one more uh, thing on them that could be helped maybe from a greater community perspective with their support, I think could be a better approach. Okay. New digital ads from National Republicans seek to, tie, seek to tie Senator Joe Donnelly to fellow Democrat Elizabeth Warren and her health care proposal. 
Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren advocates for a single-payer health care system, essentially Medicare for all. That's drawn sharp criticism from the right and doesn't enjoy total support among her fellow Democrats. The National Republican Senatorial Committee is running new digital ads seeking to tie Joe Donnelly to that proposal. Donnelly has never expressed support for single payer, but the NRSC suggests he's in lockstep with Warren. He's voted with her 82% of the time. The ads will run throughout July. Nikki Kelly, does it make sense to link Joe Donnelly with Elizabeth Warren and her single-payer proposal? I mean, I think when you're trying to unseat an incumbent, you, you basically try a little bit of everything, right? And you, you sort of see what sticks. And so I'm not sure that these ads will be particularly effective. Actually, I'm not sure these digital ads are effective At all. overall. <laughs> but they're cheap, and you're, it's easy to sustain them and just keep changing but, you know, slightly tweaking the, the process. So I don't expect that that particular issue will resonate, resonate with Indiana voters. But, you know, they got to keep the idea of his relation to, you know, liberal Democrats out in the public, and that's just one example of it. We've talked about on the show before about different, uh, different areas that, that, that national Republicans are trying to ding Joe Donnelly on. And so far, of the two or three we've talked about, nobody, there's, there seems to be agreement, none of them are really... None of them work. Is, is this more about it's hard to find something to criticize Joe Donnelly about other than maybe Obamacare? Uh, I think there's a fair amount to that. I mean, he has paid very close attention to a couple of things that I think are important and, and has done a good job with constituent work and issues that resonate, like the, the veterans' issues that he's dealt with uh, over the last few years. So I think... What you have, and I, I always think it's kind of interesting, I think you're absolutely right, but this is almost like those focus groups that they used to do all the time, except that they're kind of out in the open now. And it's like, what do you think about? And then we'll see how many clicks it gets and how people do. And like what, testing out the message. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing, and this is to your question, uh, is that uh, so far all of this has been run out of Washington. You know, the local players haven't been in, involved yet. You know, the local people who know how Hoosiers think, I think, more clearly uh, than the consultants do. I think as we get closer to the race, and if more of those people get involved, then they will have issues that will probably work better against Joe Donnelly than these kind of issues that are standard Washington fare. To, the, to Nikki's point, this is sort of a, a broader look at, well, maybe it won't, they won't land on tying him to Elizabeth Warren and single payer, but it is this effort to, I mean, you see it even in something like, you know, things that Todd Rakita sends out, who is not yet officially a candidate for this in this race, but it's tying Joe Donnelly, considered a more moderate senator, which would work in Indiana, to more liberal Democrats uh, from other states. Do you think that will have any resonance come next November? Look, I think it's a, a blatant distraction from his record, which is the kind of moderate, common sense uh, line that most Hoosiers identify with, and that's why they've sent Senator Donnelly to Washington before. That's why they'll send him again. Um, it's, it's no surprise or it's no secret that he has had unpopular votes from both sides of the aisle because he toes that line because he listens. And to your point, he does. He's in contact with his constituents. He does a great job 
finding those issues that really resonate with Hoosiers. Um, and so any attempt to tie him to someone like Elizabeth Warren or single payer, which by the record he doesn't have a record on, um, is just a blatant attempt to distract from a really strong record uh, that Hoosiers identify with politically. Do national Republicans need to refine this message? No, I think it's part of the it's part of the broader national message right now. Democrats were asked this week what their if, if they if they could improve health care, how would they do it? And the answer was from Elizabeth Warren, we would we should go to a single payer system. So I think all Democrats need to check their position on that. And if Joe Donnelly doesn't have a position, I guess it means maybe he could support it. But he does have a position. He has said that he is looking to work with, with Republicans to find a solution. His statement is he's looking for a bipartisan well, then I And he doesn't have a record on it, so uh, he doesn't have one to stand so on question either. question mark Joe Donnelly, we're opposed to it. <laughs> challengers, <laughs> challengers are lining up for a run at 9th District Congressman Trey Hollingsworth next fall. An Indiana civil rights attorney is the latest to announce his candidacy for Indiana's 9th Congressional District. Civil rights attorney Dan Cannon, who led the legal fight in Kentucky to secure same-sex marriage rights, will vie in the Democratic primary for a chance to run against Hollingsworth next November. He joins fellow Democrats Bedford orthodontist Todd Curtis and Monroe County educator Tom Pappas in challenging the new congressman. Healthcare is a primary rallying cry for each candidate. Hollingsworth voted for the House GOP's health care reform bill. The last Democrat to win Indiana's 9th Congressional District was Baron Hill in 2008. Lee Schrock, the 9th District has become pretty red the last few cycles, particularly in a midterm election. Do Democrats really have a shot there? Democrats have a shot everywhere in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Donald Trump is more unpopular now than Barack Obama ever was. Um, and uh, Congressman Hollingsworth has stood in lockstep with him with their plan to kick Hoosiers off of their health care plan, to deny service to those with pre-existing conditions, um, to uh, deny service to those looking for maternity care with this new health plan. Um, I really don't think that the 9th Congressional District is really on anyone's radar for a major pickup seat. It's not on their list. But what Democrats need to do is expand their playing field, compete everywhere they can, and I think that's what you'll see. Do they have any shot in the 9th? No. I'll tell you where I'll tell you where Donald Trump isn't unpopular in Southern Indiana. So is Trey Hollingsworth popular? You know, the, I really didn't want to like Trey Hollingsworth because all the primary and all that stuff. Man, like that guy did, is awesome. He did win. I've, I've gotten to know he him. He's an awesome guy. He's going to do a great job for a long time. All right, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfii.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.